who's got a donkey parked in the garage right nearby. You might see shepherds that are around there. And if your nativity scene had a roof that was pitched, maybe on the top of that roof you have an angel. And maybe if you were really, really lucky, you saw the very, very pointy star that was above that. And of course, there's the little baby Jesus glowing in his manger because there's a nightlight under him. You, you, you know this? You have this sort of picture in your head? Maybe you don't think like I do. The challenge is, again, for us to, to try and get the facts in there, there's very likely that there were not three wise men at this moment. There could have been many more. We don't know how many more. We don't know exactly how many wise men were there. And also, where is the there that we're talking about? I mean, it's no longer the stable. They, they, would, they would have been at a house by now because the wise men did not arrive the night that Jesus was born. By the time the wise men traveled the distance that they had to travel to get there, Jesus was very likely no longer an infant. Most scholars believe that he was probably over a year old, maybe 18 months, maybe even older. That changes that little visual, right, that I have of what it looks like. Now we have the wise men bowing down to a toddler. Baby's one thing, but a toddler? I mean, how many of you have, have ever had your own two-year-old? Or you've ever been around a two-year-old? It's, it's a different thing. And there's, uh, here's a spot of confession, okay? I used to judge parents of two-year-olds before I had children. Some of you have done this also. I saw maybe your kid in a restaurant banging on the table, right? Throwing a fit and maybe throwing mashed potatoes. And before I would judge you, before I had a two-year-old. And then I learned, what many of us have learned, you do not negotiate with terrorists, right? <laughs> you, you have a two-year-old, and they're out of control, and you're like, I'll, I'll give you anything, kid. This has been going on for some time. You become the worst parent, the worst version of what you saw yourself being, and you search for any amount of peace. What can I do? Here's my phone. Please take it. Go ahead. Play Baby Shark for the 90 millionth time. I'll give you candy. You can have the pony. I'll give you the helicopter to fly to Cuba. Whatever it is, just stop for a moment. That view of a two-year-old changes my visual of the magi, the wise men, the holy sacred moment who are perhaps now bowing down to offer their gifts to a toddler. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, starting at verse 10. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. 11, they entered the house and they saw the child with his mother, Mary. And they bowed down and they worshipped him. And they opened up the treasure chest and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Unusual gifts in our day and age, certainly. I mean, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You're, you're not, I'm on my own here. Gold frankincense, and myrrh. They're unusual, but they're very valuable gifts. They're very useful gifts, and the gifts also had a symbolic nature, a nature of symbolism that would prophesy things that Jesus would become. Unusual gifts, to be sure. And on behalf of my family, I would like to express our gratitude for the gifts that you have given in gratitude to us occasionally over the years throughout those times. Thank you for those gifts. They've been great. But to be honest, none of us has ever been given gold. Um, I have been given a handmade pottery Jesus knocking on the door lamp. Uh, it was painted with very vibrant colors, not exactly 
all on the right spots. Sadly, that was dropped by a visiting friend's daughter, and getting her to drop it cost us very little. Uh, We've been given no incense, no frankincense, but we have been given a beautiful three-wick tropical flower candle, intensely fragranced candle, and the headache cleared. My vision stopped blurring after about two or three days. It's no doubt it's just too much of a really good thing. Thank you again. Uh, The Magi gave Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and gold was valuable in a monetary way, as it has been throughout history. But gold, we're going to talk about this next episode, Um, gold symbolizes the kingship of Jesus. Jesus as king. And then frankincense. We talked about that one last episode. And that actually symbolizes Jesus as our great high priest who would offer his life, yet who's still one who can sympathize with us. He understands where it is that we are right now. Today we're going to talk about the gift of myrrh. Many people, as sad as this is, are not in the habit of regularly using myrrh. Shock. I know. Many people probably don't even know very much about myrrh. And is that you? Is that you? You are myrrh uninformed? Have you never had a myrrh moment? Completely unrelated, of course, to mermaids. Myrrh is a valuable um, gum-like kind of substance. It's actually used 17 different times throughout the Bible. Occasionally, myrrh would be used as an antiseptic or as a pain-numbing agent. For example, if you know the, the story of Jesus when he's on the cross, they offered him uh, wine mixed with myrrh to help him dull the pain of that time. And Jesus rejected that because he wanted to bear the full force and weight of our sins. More commonly, though, myrrh was used uh, as an ingredient in the embalming process to embalm the dead. In other words, myrrh would have been used after Jesus gave his life to help prepare his body for burial. So myrrh, scholars would agree, represents Jesus as the suffering servant. We'll talk about that in a moment. Or the Lamb of God. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. For the forgiveness of our sins. And today we are going to examine a prophetic passage from the ancient Jewish prophet Isaiah. The prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53. I want to show you how the myrrh represents Jesus as the suffering servant that we meet in Isaiah chapter 53, who was born to suffer on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, I'm curious, uh, whether you're at Church on Main Street, again, Church Online, um, help me out here, move a little bit. If, uh, how, how many of you are football fans? If you're football fans, the two goalposts, right? That's football fans, you're a little bit reluctant, but it's okay. If you're in chat, just say, that's me. And we know, football fans, we know you're a lot louder when it's football. Okay. Uh, Anyways, if you're a football fan, imagine, if you will, that I had the power to predict the two teams that would be at this year's Super Bowl. Perhaps impressive, perhaps not so much at this time of the year. Maybe I'm just lucky. Imagine, though, if I could predict the exact, the final score, the teams that are playing, and who would win That would be mind-blowing if I could tell you what was going to happen next year, right? And you, if you're a gambler, you might might actually want to befriend me and we could get along very well. Imagine this, though. Let's just say that the world is still here and that somehow football is still popular 700 years from now. If I could predict the two opposing teams at the Super Bowl, tell you the exact score, tell you who was playing 700 years from now, that would make me a prophet like no other. 
But Isaiah did something essentially very similar, very, very similar. He prophesied 700 years before the birth of Christ. 700 years, a very detailed account of what the suffering servant, Jesus, would endure on our behalf. We're going to look at that in a moment. First, I'm going to show you our problem because Advent reminds us that there's a problem. We have a problem. Then I'm going to show you the price that Jesus paid for our sinful problem so we could be forgiven and experience eternal life. Whole lot of stuff in there. Let's start with our problem. We're going to see that in uh, verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 53. So if you have your Bible, you can go Isaiah 53. We're going to be there a bunch. The uh, prophet Isaiah says, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Isaiah says that you are like sheep. And unfortunately, it is not a compliment. If Isaiah had said, all we like lions, that might have been a compliment. Or if he had said, all we like eagles, that might have been a compliment. But when he compared us to sheep, he was essentially saying, y'all are not the brightest crayon in the box, right? That's what he's telling us. Because you can train a lot of animals. You can train a dog. You can train a bird. You can train a hamster. You can train an elephant. You can train a pig. You can even, I'll admit it, you can sometimes even train some cats. But you can't train a sheep. Have you ever gone to the circus to watch the trained sheep show? I mean, no, I don't think so. That's not what's happening, right? Have you ever had someone say to you, you really need to come over. I got to show you my pet sheep. I want you to come over and watch my sheep sit. I just realized what an incredibly uh, dangerous <laughs> sentence that I just pulled off there majestically, I'll say. Come and watch my sheep sit. Sit, Ubu, sit. Good sheep. Uh, things, things there could have gone bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's dad joke time. Hashtag, stop me. Uh, stop me now. Uh, sheep is not a compliment, okay? But, but he's, he's not talking trash about us, though. But he is trying to make that unfavorable comparison so you can see it. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Sheep are basically known then and now for three things. They're weak, they're witless, and they're wayward. And in case you don't know, right there, that's classic preaching, all right? Three alliterated points, the same first letter. Come on, that's the good stuff right there. Somebody say amen. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. They're weak, all right? Think about this. Sheep are weak, and you probably know this already. Remember, he's also talking about us. But sheep are kind of defenseless. So if a coyote or a lion comes after a sheep, how does a sheep defend itself? What can they do? They can't spray their super bad smell. They can't go like, ha, and like bare their fangs. They've got no fangs. They've got no quills. They're not fast. They can't fly away. They don't blend in, and they don't have a poisonous tongue, and they can't breathe fire. They are essentially defenseless. But not only are they defenseless, they don't even say like, hey, 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 you run that way. I'm going to run this way. And at least one of us will get away. One of us will live. Nope. Sheep huddle up. Come right to the middle and they say, go ahead, take your pick, whatever you want. We're all here. Uh, which We're all waiting for you. Bah. 
they, they don't know how to defend themselves. They're weak. And that shows kind of also that they're witless. In, in other words, they don't do a great job thinking for themselves. Sheep tend to follow the crowd. Remember, he's also talking about us. If, if one sheep does dumb sheep stuff, the other sheep do dumb sheep stuff too. This is a true story. You can look this one up, okay? In the year 2005 in Turkey, 1,500, 1,500 dumb sheep followed each other all off a cliff. 1,500. You would think after the first one, second one, third one, after the fourth one, the fifth one, the sixth one, the seventh one would have said, hey, this is not a good plan. I'm backing off. But no. 1,500 sheep followed each other off the cliff. The bad news is that 400 of them died. The good news is it was the first 400. So the rest lived because the first 400, uh, they fell off and they made a nice sheep pillow. So the rest are just going boing, 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 boing. It was, fun it was funnier in my head. Uh, when Isaiah calls us sheep, it's not a compliment but it is accurate. Sheep are also wayward. Uh, they wander. Uh, wh wh where are you going, little sheepy? Uh, I don't know. I'm looking for something. I'm looking for some happiness over there. So if I go and I go, maybe I'll get these shoes, then I'll be happy. Nope. Just in debt. I'm going to have this great experience. We're all going to go and do this. And I go, nope. I'm just hurt. Everybody else did that, so I'm going to go and do that too. Sheep are wayward. They wander. When the prophet Isaiah said, all of us like sheep, he, he wasn't saying, wow, you're amazing. He was saying, you need a lot of help because you tend to go off God's path and you tend to choose your own. And because you don't know where your path is heading, quite frequently you end up hurting yourself. So let's go back. Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone uh, straight away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet, the Lord laid on him, the him is the suffering servant, the one who will later be revealed to be Jesus. The Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Now remember, this is 700 years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah prophesied, verse 7, he was oppressed and treated harshly. He had never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but have you ever been hurt? Have you ever been mistreated, rejected, overlooked, unjustly criticized, misunderstood? In that time, where you are, Jesus understands. It was prophesied of him that in verse 3, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and we looked the other way. He was despised. And we did not care. For yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. That's what Jesus would do for us. It seems like 
when people imagine that story like we had at the beginning. They imagine a baby born in a manger, and sometimes people will say, oh, that was a holy moment. That was special. That was something there. But what difference does it make to me today? What, what, what does that mean? Does it make any difference that Jesus died on a cross? Does it make any difference that he rose again? I don't really believe he rose again. How could that happen? But that's what you guys say. Why should I follow Jesus? Why should I devote my life to him? And when you understand the magnitude of his suffering and the depths of his love, you, you're not really able to just casually say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I mean, sure, I go to church as long as I have the time. I mean, we might as well go ahead and pray over that food before we eat, right? Let me just, let me just say a quick prayer. No, no, no. When we understand what he did for us, the declaration of divine love, the only reasonable response is to wholly, completely follow him. I'll try to describe it, but I, I can't adequately do it. I'll tell you that right up front. But let's start with the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a place where Jesus wrestled with God. We get a glimpse of, of uh, where he, he got, gets a glimpse of the suffering that was to come. And he says to his disciples, please, please, please come with me. Guys, stick with me. I need you. Pray. Watch with me. And they did for a bit, but they fell asleep. And then he was all alone and he cries out to God, knowing what is to come. He says, God, would you please remove this cup of suffering from me? And then he fell to the ground and, and, and blood dripped from his brow. And the medical term for that is hemosiderosis. It, it's something that you experience under extreme stress or trauma. It's when your capillaries actually burst and the blood is mixed with sweat, and it falls to the ground. And he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's how bad it was. God, can we, is there any other way that we can do this? But then he declares faithfully, yet Father, not my will, but your will be done. Then one of his own, Judas, his friend, betrays him with a kiss. He's arrested, he's falsely accused, he's unfairly tried and sentenced to death. And not just any death, but death by crucifixion. And there he would be stripped naked, publicly exposed, feeling humiliated and ashamed. They would put the crown of thorns on his head. And those thorns are about a half an inch, uh, one and a half to two inch long thorns going into his brow. And then the beating would start and again and again and again they would hit him. And they'd whip him across the back repeatedly wearing a large signet ring. They would, they would beat him in his face. They'd take clubs and they, they, they'd pound it across his head, further drive, driving those thorns deeper into his brow. Isaiah implies that they would pull out his beard and that he was so disfigured that he wasn't even recognizable as a human being. And then weak, and suffering, and alone, They'd give him the, the, the cross piece, the cross bar, weighing about 100 pounds, force him to carry it about 650 meters on a path known as the way of suffering to Golgotha, called the place of the skull, to be crucified on the cross. And they would take the nails, seven inches or so in length, drill them, drive them into his wrists, through his feet, hang him on the cross where his back so bloodied his internal organs would likely be exposed, sweeping back and forth across the rugged, beaten cross, the old 
rugged cross. The only way that he could breathe was to pull himself up on wrists filled with nails and push up on feet filled with nails trying to just catch a breath. It wouldn't be long before his shoulders would be dislocated and his legs would give out as he was slowly, slowly, slowly become unable to even catch a breath, suffocating, hanging out under the heat of the day, shamefully, nakedly exposed as all the creation mocks the Son of God, the Creator. That was only the beginning. The most painful part was when the innocent one who had never sinned bore all of the sins of the world, became himself everything vile and filthy and unholy and demonic and became that. And then God, in his righteousness and holiness, could not look upon sin. God pulls away. And the intimate fellowship that Jesus had always known with his Father is broken. And in probably that most agonizing moment of his life, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you pulled away? Why aren't you here with me? Why have you forsaken me? And then they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. The very thing that they would use shortly to embalm him after death. And he says, no, I I don't want to numb the pain. I will finish what my Father sent me to do. And then he cries out again. To tell us die. He declares it in faith. It is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave his life for the forgiveness of our sins. And the prophet Isaiah, seven hundred years before this ever took place, had prophetically declared what this child, this innocent one born of a virgin never sinned, would endure on behalf of our sinfulness. Isaiah continues about the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, verse 8. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. Nine. He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. How did Isaiah know that a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea would offer his family's tomb 700 years in the future. How did he know that? Verse 11, when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. That's what he did for us. Think about that for a moment. What is it that kind of sets Christianity apart from other world religions? What sets it apart from Islam and Buddhism and the New Age and Hinduism? What is it that sets us apart? Certainly part of that is the bloody death 
of an innocent victim. That's what sets it apart because that death reflects all the way back into the early Jewish scriptures to something known as Passover. Once a year, God would execute temporary judgment on the sins of the people. He would unleash the most fierce force in the world, his righteous judgment on the sins of mankind. What could protect you from this judgment? Well, the blood of an innocent lamb. A family would take a lamb, a one-year-old lamb, sacrifice the lamb, and they would eat the meat of the lamb, take the blood of that lamb, and they would put some on the doorposts, like the, uh, above the door and on the sides. When they were in Egypt, then the, the angel of death would then pass over the house because that family was saved. They were marked. They were covered by the blood of an innocent lamb. Well, what separates Christianity from all the other world religions is that God himself would become flesh, would become human, would come to earth, and he would allow himself to be pierced for our rebellion and crushed for our sins, beaten so that we could be made whole. And the stripes that he bore upon his back, by those we would be healed. So when you visualize it, when you have that picture of those wise men, when they offer him myrrh, the substance used to embalm the dead, you understand God was foreshadowing what was to come, that the Lamb of God would be slain for the sins of the world. And Jesus understood this himself. He declares it. He prophesies it about himself. This is what he said, Luke's gospel. Go there, uh, chapter 9, verse 22. He said this of himself. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and, and, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day raised to life. 23, then he, then he said to all of them, whoever wants to be my disciple. <laughs> Let me tell you what Jesus did not say, okay? He didn't say, pray a little prayer for me, okay? And then you'll be blessed and prosperous every day for the rest of your life. He didn't say that. He didn't imply that. There was no hint of that ever. He didn't say, go ahead and pray a little prayer of salvation and then do whatever you want. Just live any way you want. Do whatever you, and then little jacuzzi Jesus will come along, just clean all your sins up. He didn't say that. What he said was this, 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. It's not about you. And take up your cross daily. In other words, you die to yourself. And you die to yourself daily. It is ongoing and it is always a choice. A choice that you continue to make. <coughs> and then he said, and follow me. Come after me. It's not a hobby it's not an add-on. It's not something that helps us feel good when we want to celebrate Santa at Grandma's house. It's God becoming flesh, born of a virgin, not inheriting the sin nature of an earthly father, but the heavenly nature of a divine father. He never sinned. And when you understand that and all that's going on, the gift that God gave us, it overwhelms and overtakes your life. What did he do? He endured all of this for you. For your life, for mine, for my lustfulness and yours, for our hypocrisy, for our judgmental spirit, our greed, our anger, our unforgiveness, our wicked, selfish hearts. 
And God sent Magi to give him gold, prophetically declaring that he would be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They gave him frankincense. He is our great high priest. The veil that separates God from people has been torn. It's been opened up. He gave his life that we would have access to come boldly before the throne of grace for our high priest receives us because he understands and myrrh an embalming material declaring that this one, this child, was born to die. That's why it's called the gospel, because it's good news, good news beyond measure, that our God would do that for us. What did we do to deserve that? That His Son Jesus would be crushed for our rebellion, our constantly walking off the path, beaten so that we could be made whole. By His wounds we may be healed. And because of what He did, died but more than that he rose again and we hang the whole thing on the resurrection of jesus i don't follow him because i have to because it makes me a better person person because because it's something that i can do uh every now and again on a sunday but because of who he is and what he did and what he offered for me i give him repeatedly i give him my whole life and i challenge you to do the same to follow him and see that your christmas is not transformed So kind Father, today we ask that as your church, we would honor you. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for what you have given. You are worthy of our praise. You are worth what we give you. There there is none like you. You are the suffering servant. And we say to God be the glory. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue to move in us, not just because we're here in this building, but because you you, you have shown that you love us. You've shown that you have desired to work in this world even through us, and we can't comprehend why that sounds like a good idea, but that's the way you decided you were going to do it. So, by your Spirit, calm mine, calm ours, that we would rise to the challenge that you have given us. We would rise to the opportunity that is before us, that we might live for you, make a difference in this world, connect with you now, be transformed by you now that the kingdom of God might come into visible presence in this world by the way that we would choose to submit our lives to you. It's not about us. It's not about what I want first. It's about what you would call me to first. As we've said before, Lord Jesus, you first, and then everything else after. That's the order that we work with. For my friends that are here today and for those who are listening and watching from afar, your blessing upon them. May the Holy Spirit of God bring peace, bring wholeness, and allow us the experience of love today, but Wednesday too and Friday and Saturday afternoon. May we stay intentionally in your presence. Fill us up, we pray. Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place, in my life, and in the lives of these folks here. We welcome you in Jesus' name. Amen.